In tonight's episode of NCI's Reports on Phil, we talked to Tim Quick. Tim had a great career with NIST, and he'll tell you that he had more fun than humans should be allowed uh, as a special agent with NCIS. And I, I have to agree with him. It is a great agency, and we both had uh, very good experiences in our organization. It doesn't happen for everybody, but it happened for us. Uh, great, uh, great opportunities uh, came through that, and Tim uh, made the most of that. From a carrier agent uh, on the JFK, John F. Kennedy, uh, to a cold case agent, which he's going to talk about a little bit. Those are really interesting stories. Tim has a great history in this organization, did some time in Guam, uh, obviously was the executive assistant to both the deputy director and the director, uh, so he has some great stories. And he's still doing good stuff today. So, uh, with that said, I'd like to uh, welcome. Uh, good morning, Tim. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Leif. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, we go way back, as you know, so it's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to, uh, to be here with you today. I'm from Illinois, uh, born in Illinois, uh, the big uh, city of Kiwani, hard capital of the world, actually. Um, nice. We moved around quite a bit until early years, uh, and then settled in the Mount Vernon, Illinois. Uh, it's about an hour from Carbondale, Illinois. So got my undergrad at SIU Carbondale uh, and started my law enforcement career with the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department there in Mount Vernon. I uh, was a deputy for about three years and then uh, went to the Mount Vernon Police Department and uh, off to a good start there. I was on a, on a drug task force uh, as a rookie, which it doesn't get any better than that because you get to let your hair grow out. You get a take home car <laughs> and uh, I was engaged to be married. And one month before I'm getting married, I get laid off. This is kind of like, it wasn't really defund the police, but before you ever heard about defund the police, it was just our city had budget problems. So they cut three officers. I was number two from the bottom, uh, got cut. Uh, about six months later, got called back, fortunately. But during that interim, while I was laid off, I recall a couple of NCIS agents who came to a class at SIU. And I uh, kind of went back, reached out to them, applied, and then uh, one year after I applied, this is why I was laid off, one year later, NCIS called and said, hey, are you still interested in a job? Because uh, we're going to start your background investigation. There was a, a, a lull there where they weren't hiring. It was a hiring freeze. So about October, November of 88, they started the background and then um, started the same time you did, January 1989. And uh, I remember when I went to the chief, I said, hey, when I was laid off, you told me to look for a job. And I know you brought me back. But while I was laid off, uh, I, I applied, I'm, I'm going to take this job with NCIS, and there was no regrets uh, uh, by him, uh, no concern, and obviously no regrets by me. So it off to a good start, and uh, started in Chicago, uh, January 89. Your time with the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department, and of course the police department as well, how did that influence your thinking as an agent when you came on board uh, NIS at the time? Yeah. I'm glad I went that route. Uh, you learn more on the streets, I think, than you could ever learn in a classroom. And uh, if I hadn't gotten laid off, I don't know how much longer I would have stayed there. Maybe forever, to be honest with you. I went back uh, about three months ago to an event at my high school. I talked about that. If I hadn't been laid off by the police department, uh, I may have stuck around. I, I may have tried to run for sheriff one day. I, I really had aspirations for being the chief of police, uh, but that didn't happen. But I it, it, things turned out okay. We got to see the world, um, ended up in Florida, but I, I think I would have stayed there for quite a while, to be honest with you. I, I love what I was doing, learned a lot, um, but yeah, things happen for a reason, and I look back on that as a, as a crucible in my life. I used that same uh, presentation at the FBI National Academy about three years ago about an event in your life 
and everything else after that is related back to that. So if I hadn't been laid off by the police department, would have started with NCIS, uh, would have ended up in Florida, and then everything that influenced my kid's life, uh, where they went to school, uh, their sports that they played, I, I trace it all back to that uh, getting laid off at the police department. Two weeks, I remember the first weekend there, I, I drove back to, uh, to Mount Vernon, uh, still had a house there, my wife was still living there. Uh, and then I think the end of the second week, Wednesday or Thursday, they fly us down to uh, Glencoe, and then we're there through April. Um, so I, I knew what Chicago was like winter-wise, but I, uh, I, I, had, I was left in January. And then for the next three years, experienced Chicago winters. My wife said, go anywhere, uh, but just get me out of Chicago. So <laughs> we did, and we ended up in Guam as the next tour. <laughs> Well, that's a that's a nice warm place to go to. What kind of cases did you work in uh, uh, Great Lakes while you're there? Uh, uh, as far as the case, um, caseload, what was the majority? A lot of, of, a lot of narcotic stuff. Uh, we worked local North Chicago PD, Waukegan PD, Lake County Sheriff's Office. Uh, Mike Kelleher was there. You know Mike? Uh, sure. Burkhart. We were uh, pretty much a narcotics team. Uh, a lot of proactive stuff, reactive stuff. Uh, a lot of sexual assaults there. We had hospital core school. Um, mm -hmm. It was it was a busy office. Not a lot in the way of uh, homicides, uh, but cat aids, as you know, sexual assaults, and then the seven yeah. and stuff and narcotic stuff. And they, we were hopping busy. Uh, if you were the duty agent uh, for a week or a weekend, uh, kind of like where you were from, you know, San Diego, Norfolk, it was it was not as busy those places. But you got yeah. to uh, cut your teeth and learn a lot um, yeah. starting off there. Yeah, training commands can be a challenge because I know at NTC when they still had an NTC in San Diego. Uh, very similar cases to what you had at Great Lakes, uh, the sexual assaults, a lot of the, you know, the stuff that happens in with the recruits. Um, so it's a challenging, that's a challenging caseload for sure. Oh, yeah. And the boot camp was there. The, uh, the females weren't there, but the male boot camp. And uh, the weekend, as you know, after the graduation, watch out. Uh, <laughs> they had bottled up for about 10 weeks. They let them loose and uh, watch out. It was, uh, it was busy on Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Yeah. You, you know, it's amazing because the hotels around there, I had to go to Great Lakes about three years to do a background investigation up around the uh, Round Lakes area. And um, I, I was doing a background and I stayed in a hotel close to Great Lakes on this occasion. And uh, I think the first time I stayed in Milwaukee and just drove down to Great Lakes every day. Um, but I stayed in this hotel and it was a it was an it was a Marriott. It seemed like it'd be a nice hotel. But then they told me, said, well, this is one of those hotels that they have graduation parties at. And oh, my gosh, it was it was it was it was. That was the worst Marriott that I ever stayed in my life. <laughs> but as you know, it was under the per diem. And oh, yeah. you know how hotels are. It's like they want you to stay at the cheapest thing. And exactly. I wish I'd have stayed at a Motel 6 because I think it had been better condition. Probably so. Yeah. So anyway, so what? So Great Lakes. So um, how long did you stay at Great Lakes? Stayed there four years. January of 93, uh, transferred mid-cycle, mid-year uh, to Guam, which is a good time to leave Chicago. Leave in okay. January, uh, snow and ice. And arrived in Guam about uh, three days later. We took a little detour in Hawaii, uh, tropical climate in Guam. And the thing about Guam, nobody wanted to go to Guam. It, it was expensive and you didn't get free housing. Uh, I understood that going in. I had people try to talk me out of going to Guam. Uh, but we got there. I tell you what, absolutely loved it. Now, my wife, I look back on that and say that was probably the best two and a half years of our lives uh, spent on Guam. So absolutely love it. Went back there on vacation. Uh, my son graduated high school. He was born in Guam. 
So uh, he graduated high school. We went back there. Who goes to Guam on vacation uh, besides the Quicks, you know? Is there? <laughs> well, let me ask you about it. something about the Quicks. Um, tell me something about uh, Guam. What you heard all these rumors that Guam was a bad place. And this is for those young agents out there that are looking at places to go to. And they hear these same stories that we heard 25 years or 30 years yeah. ago, um, that Guam is a, a hard place to go to young in your young career. When you arrived on the ground in Guam, um, what can you, can you explain immediately what, uh, what you, your observations of what this could, could be a really good tour or a really bad tour? Uh, immediately it was positive. We stayed in downtown uh, Tulunian area, which is the, the, the tourist area, hotels, nice hotels. And we were in a hotel for about 30 days. Then we moved to the furnished apartment because because we were mid-cycle, it took us that long to get base housing. So okay. we got there in January. I think it was June, late June before we got into base housing. So we moved from a, a really nice hotel, a hotel row to, uh, to a furnished apartment. Um, but for a small island, it's 30 miles long, eight miles wide, not a lot to do there unless you like the outdoor activities, running, swimming, biking, um, hiking, booty stops as they're called there. Uh, but once you get acclimated to that uh, and adapt to it, it, it's the best. And we loved it. And the people who didn't like it are the ones who don't like those type of activities. So going into it, if you don't like to swim, uh, scuba dive, uh, do boonie stomps. Uh, you're going to have a miserable time there. It's, it's. I tell you, the weather's better in Florida. It doesn't get above 90 degrees. It's humid uh, year round. You can wear shorts and t-shirts. Rains a lot about six months out of the year. You got typhoons. We had an earthquake, 8.2 earthquake. One month after we moved into our house, 8.2. wasn't ready for that. Uh, oh my nobody prepared me for that. But. So moving back to Florida, after what we experienced in Guam, typhoons, earthquakes, um, rationing of power, uh, my wife and I are like, bring it on. What, what can you throw at us in the world that we haven't experienced by our two and a half years in Guam? More resilient, uh, made us love life, appreciate life even, even more. So good tour. Wow. What, would, what do you think your most significant case was when you were in Guam? Uh, Tom Brady and I talk about this like Tom Brady, our Tom Brady, not Tom Brady, the quarterback. Bonnie, as you know, was our was our classmate. Uh, yeah, Bonnie Torrey. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Tom and I, I was a duty agent. Got a call. It was on a Thursday morning. Duty agent, uh, female sailor, murdered out in town. So I called Tom. Uh, told Tom shower up, clean up, and we're going to be out all day. We were. We were out all day, all night. Uh, but a female sailor murdered out in town, bludgeoned to death. Uh, brutal, brutal, senseless killing behind a bar, a uh, popular uh, place for the sailors. We worked with the Guam Police Department jointly. Uh, we kind of ran with some leads on our end. They had their stuff. And then uh, through the course of in the, in the Thursday night, I developed a suspect. And uh, we, myself and another uh, Guam Police Department detective, obtained a confession from the guy. So, and we rolled into the Friday and the Friday evening. But Tom and, Tom and I still talk about that case. It was a joint effort. Everybody rolled out on it. Uh, the boss was out of town, so we kind of went rudderless there. Just the team uh, assembled and made it work and made it happen. Uh, Let me ask you I, this: as far as the suspect, uh, what was the? Um, can you describe what was the the suspect? How did you guys uh, focus in on him as as the suspect? Well, we had a, we had a description. Somebody had seen the two leave the bar together. Based on the description, we thought it was a sailor. Go back to the ship, uh, the USS Holland, a subtender in Guam, and I uh, started doing interviews. Uh, developed a logical suspect, uh, went and identified his car, 
Jim Tackett, I don't remember Jim. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sure. went out to the car, walked around the car and saw some items in the back seat in the, in the hatch area. It looked like bloody clothing. Um, got a command authorized search, searched the vehicle, identified the owner, and then it brought him over and it just kind of went from there. He confessed. So that's interesting. Yeah. So, so Sailor was the suspect then? Sailor yeah, was a suspect. Yeah, we initially put him in the brig and then about a week later, transferred him over to uh, authorities in Guam. And then um, he pled guilty about a year later. Um, and matter of fact, he it was a life sentence. I think he ended up doing about 25 years. Just wow. someone sent me the uh, link a while back. He was released from prison. So, Interesting. Yeah. So, so this sailor, um, uh, obviously, when you guys... Uh, do these in uh, these death investigations, uh, these individuals, you're going to have to strategize for the interrogation before you sit down with the guy. What was what was kind of your thought process on this? Well, it, we, we hadn't really put him at the scene. We, we had a description going into the interview and interrogation. We didn't know for certain it was him. Uh, we, we did a, a soft interview early on um, and then and we took a break. And um, Tom Brady took some hair samples, voluntary uh, samples from his from his hair to eight, we were going to compare those to what we had developed the crime scene. Um, and then we went back in a little harder the next time. Uh, after we had kind of convinced ourselves from what we saw at the scene, uh, we had uh, witnesses uh, identify him as the person leaving with our victim. So it kind of fell from there. It, it, uh, it just, it was textbook. I wish we could have video audio recorded that back then. We didn't. Yeah. Uh, it would have been good to look, look back on that and see how it just kind of rolled and and came together it was it, it worked out well though that's a good thing did you have somebody that influenced how you how you did interviews and interrogations in your early career yeah i think at great lakes we had some good guys there mike stevens i'm not mike stevens, uh, jim burkhart was a good one uh, uh-huh. and mike kelleher uh, yeah. two of the best uh, and you, you sit around as a second agent in an interview interrogation and uh like you said you learn from from those guys they've been around longer than i had they were good at it and I remember Mike Keller said, go in there and don't stop until they confess or they ask for an attorney. Yeah. If you believe they did it, if you believe yeah. they, they actually absolutely committed a crime, you don't give up. You stay yeah. with it. And uh, so it's hard if you're going in sometime to an interview or interrogation and you aren't convinced yourself uh, that a person did it. That's when it becomes a little tough. But if you go in there with the right attitude, the right mindset, this person did it. I'm not stopping until they confess. Uh, until he asked for an attorney and then uh, good things will come as a result of that yeah that's awesome so so you have obviously your your you have your son there in guam uh now yep. the girls aren't born yet they, they they're well, justine justine was born in chicago in libertyville yeah. so that's okay my son born in guam and then we leave guam and come to florida and janice is born three so my wife said we've moved three times we've had three kids we're not moving anymore. I'm not having any more kids. Church services were held on the beach. So that's cool. Stand, yeah, no waves in Guam. So the safe is like a pool and uh, keep an eye on them. Church service. And then church service is over. Uh, neighbors roll down. They, they spend the rest of the day at the beach. Uh, it was good, a good life, good family life. And I had bid on pretty much everything. Uh, Mayport was one of the openings. Uh, bid on that and got it. And uh, it during a transition after I've been selected for Mayport, Bob Hartley, who was the ASAC in the uh, Mayport sure. Southeast Field Office, reached out and said, hey, you want to work special ops when you come to Florida? You, you, special ops, you don't have duty. You get a take-home car. Uh, I said, sounds good to me. Not really know what I was getting into. So I get to Florida working dope for the next two years. Um, that was great uh, back in the 7N arena. Um, but 
loving life in Florida. So yeah, sure, absolutely. You're very lucky to get to Mayport. I mean, usually people go to Guam and Japan, go to California. It's like because it's I, like the age goes. Oh, that's a short move. Let's just go to the West Coast. Well, good. I work at Ford directly for the ASAC, Bob Hartley, great guy, one of the yep. best bosses ever. And my partner was one Mark Ridley. Yeah, uh, I, I, I talk about he was the best uh, narcotics agent I probably ever worked with. He could buy dope, he could sell dope to anybody. And uh, we worked a lot of the locals, uh, the beaches, uh, Clay County, um, JSO. We, we were busy. Uh, and I spent about a year with Mark, then he transferred. Uh, to Japan after that. I stuck another year uh, out with ops after that. Um, but working ops, I, 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 had, I had long hair. Picture me with long hair, <laughs> an earring, goatee, almost as good as yours there. And I drove an 85 Cadillac, limousine tinted windows. My neighbors hated me, lived in a golf course community. My neighbors hated me. They thought I was a doper. Uh, nobody would talk to me. You know, go to church on a Sunday with long hair and earring and little kids are thinking, who the heck is this guy? Uh, <laughs> but two years with that, I was ready to move on. Went back into Jim Curran after that, after a couple yeah. of years working. It was a it was a tough with little kids, it was a tough life, uh, a tough cycle there. So sure. I did my time, decided, yeah, I need to get back to a normal life for a while. That's amazing. So um, it's amazing that, that your neighbors perceived you to be something that you weren't. So yeah. <laughs> that's that's good under your I'm mowing my yard one day after I went from being looking like a doper to having a haircut like this. And we had twin five-year-old boys that live behind us. Uh-huh. And they said, Mom, somebody's mowing Mr. Tim's yard. She said, I think that might be Mr. Tim. <laughs> no, no, you got to mow this Mindy. Find out who's mowing his yard. So I had to reintroduce myself to my neighbors and people at the pool. And it was like, yeah, starting life all over again. <laughs> that is great. Did they know that you had done, you were doing undercover work? Uh, uh, they, they really didn't ask. I guess they kind of understood. Uh, oh, okay. I, I, still, I kept my, I still have my undercover driver's license. Every once in a while, I'll pull it out and show somebody. I didn't look like the same guy I am now, but it was, oh, uh, wow. it, it was fun. Wow. So, so how long did you stay in Mayport after that? I mean, so what did you do in Mayport oh, after your, after your Jen Cram? When you Jen Cram? For a long time, I broke the code. They, they used to say because I spent a lot of time in Florida. I, I transferred here in '95, and I didn't PCS from here until 2011. Wow. Yeah, go figure. That's right, because you went, you went to CRFO after that, right? Yeah, after 2011, uh, I think it was October of 11, transferred to CRFO. But the oh. whole time before that, I was here. Uh, I did special ops, and then I did a carrier tour uh, 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's break that down. Let's, let's go back to when you went to Jen Krim. So you go to a carrier. Which carrier did you go to? Uh, USS Kennedy. I started oh, there in August okay. of 2001 uh, okay. with lead Steve Gezzi on the carrier there. Oh, nice. So tell me about your tour on the, on the, on the JFK. Uh, I used to tell the director this, and I was at headquarters, best tour ever uh, was, was carrier, a, a float tour, because you learn more in 12 months than you probably will in a career because yeah. you, of, the, of, the, of the people you work with, uh, the amount of time you spend with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was going to be an easy tour. We were six months uh, after I started, we were going to uh, deploy, and we had like 15 port calls scheduled. This is going to be great. I knew we would be busy, but we were going to have a lot of uh, port calls. Um, so September the 11th, uh, as you know, 2001, the September 10th, I said goodbye to the family. Uh, I was going to spend the night on the ship and then head out the next day for about four weeks of, uh, uh, of ops, training ops, uh, workups. And then I'm in my office September the 11th. The only time I ever had the TV on 
in the short time I've been there. And I'm watching the TV. I see one of the towers kind of smoldering. I'm on the phone with a guy from FDOE. And then I'm on the phone with him as the second plane hits the tower. And I said, brother, I don't know what's going on here, but I got to go. I hung up the phone. I knew I probably wouldn't have much time at all to, to call somebody. Back then, we had no cell phones, as you know. Um, I knew my wife was at school that day with the kids, um, young kids. Uh, I, I thought it was fifth grade, third grade, then my youngest daughter in kindergarten. So I called the field office. I got a hold of Grant McIntosh. Mm -hmm. And it was Grant's back birthday. I didn't know that. On 9-11, it's his birthday. So I called Grant. I said, <clears throat> excuse me, Grant. Uh, call, call my <clears throat> some water here. Call my wife uh, when you can. Here's her, here's her phone number and uh, <clears throat> let her know that I have no idea what's going on or when I'm coming back, but uh, uh, let her know uh, what, what you can. And he did. He finally got a hold of her later that day. Um, but, and then for the next 10 days, I guess 14 days, we're doing um, combat air patrol off the coast of New York. And then eventually we rolled back in the Caribbean, finished up the ops. And then uh, six months later, we're dropped in uh, warheads on foreheads in the um, on the Taliban, and uh, no port calls. <laughs> All those good port calls we had scheduled uh, went away, as you can imagine. We had one on the way through in um, in Greece, and then um, that was it. Uh, a couple in the sandbox, and then a couple on the way out. That was uh, they stayed. They kept them busy out there the whole time, which meant meant less work for me. Um, but uh, you know, more work for them, less uh, less time for them to get into trouble. Must have done a lot of underway replenishments during that time because I know the JFK was the last diesel carrier. Oh yeah, uh, that they had they had launched. So uh, it, that must have been uh, interesting. You know, with the ship that has to refuel uh, on occasion. The the you know your your where where do you refuel at when you're you know uh, obviously the oiler's cl pretty close usually. Yeah, there's go, always somebody nearby. And yeah. Got to get yeah, gas. Yeah. Jabal Ali, some place they would pull into occasionally, um, in and out, um, Dubai, just to keep us in the sandbox, a little bit of liberty just there immediately around the ship. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it was uh, the op tempo and trying to keep that uh, the old Kennedy uh, afloat with fuel uh, and food. It was tough. Well, before 9 11, you're doing a lot of crim work on board the ship. Um, and then September 11th happens and you guys go off and doing combat air patrols off of New York. And then eventually you're going to be moving towards the Middle East you know, to do missions there. What's it like, like for an agent during that time? Because the ship is pretty engaged. I'm sure the sailors are pretty busy doing their jobs. So what kind of what kind of work did you have primarily when you were uh, during that time? Well, from like the six months before we deployed, they were working long days trying to get the ship ready to go. And we would go out for two weeks, come back for a couple of weeks. So it was just every time they left, as you know, you did the carrier tour. Every time they went out, you went out with them. And um, still trying to finish up cases that were developed back while they were, while we were at Mayport. Uh, mm -hmm. The sailors would go and get in trouble out of town, uh, finish up those cases. And then really preparing for the intel side for deployment. Because mm -hmm. you're the only, as you know, the only agent on the carrier. We used to have two agents on carriers. Somebody who handled the uh, the crim and the uh, the FCI NSD piece. So yeah. I was never an NSD FCI guy on the crim. <laughs> so I had to learn that stuff in a hurry. Didn't yeah. know who uh, Osama bin Laden was. You know, Al Qaeda. <laughs> that was all new to me, and I couldn't even spell it for one thing. And then trying to figure it out and, and trying to wear a different hat. I was yeah. going to briefings, intel briefings, and trying to. Uh, pass that stuff on, receive it, and share it with the ship, whereas before, I mean, that just wasn't my, uh, uh, I felt 
it was always my responsibility, but there wasn't a need for it until yeah. 9 11. So it kind That's, of it, it was amazing. I, I as on my carrier tour, I, I remember I told people that no, I didn't have I have a partner. His name is Ray Carmen, and it's a videotape of all the foreign counterintelligence stuff. I was, I was a Jim oh, Kern guy too. And I and I would just go in there and do a briefing, and I would pop in the videotape and go, here you go, guys. Here's your here's your counterintelligence awareness brief. So I said, Ray Carmen was my partner um, in virtual virtuality, uh, you know, throughout my tour there. That's good stuff. <laughs> so I, I, hey, wish so, we, I wish we had two agents. I don't know how you felt, but I think when, especially yeah. on the op tempo, uh, you need to. And then yeah. when you when you go in advance of a, a ship visit into a port, the agent would fly off. So you always yeah. able to have somebody behind if you had two agents on there. And yeah. we didn't have that. So I always felt like maybe I was would have missed something you know, if it happened while I was gone. It'd be nice to have two agents. You could flip back and forth. Some, uh, I take one uh, uh, poor call, you take the next in, in advance. Um, so I don't know if that, they still haven't, they haven't done it. I guess it's still just one agent per carrier. Yeah. But yeah. Well, let me ask you this as far as, because uh, I had a very similar experience. I was one agent on, on the carrier. They'd stopped doing the two agent thing just before me. Um, but in your time on board, what was your working relationship with command investigations on board the ship? I know that I had a close working relationship. I had to. Uh, I was wondering how yours was. In the same way, you have to. You develop that relationship before you need it. But we were, I was in good with all of them. And uh, when I needed help uh, on a search or an interview or interrogation, I, there were a handful of guys I would reach out to. A uh, great relationship. Uh, I worked, my office was in security birthing area. And then they had the, uh, the the armory right next to my office, uh, security office, uh, the, the lieutenant and the chief just down the hallway, the SECO. Uh, I ate dinner with the SECO every night, uh, lunch and dinner. Uh, home with those guys. I mean, that's that's your camaraderie. That's your crew, as you know. And, yep. and if, you, if you didn't get along with them, it would have been a tough tour. Them sure. and the XO and the CO, uh, yeah, you had to have good relationships. And, and the ones that had struggled or probably failed it was because uh, those relationships weren't there and it's not always necessarily the fault of the agent sometimes it just uh, you got some knuckleheads you're working with but it, it I, I had no complaints um, it, it was smooth and they supported me i supported them it, it was a good time yeah so tell me about uh, so for all the young agents out there tell me about how you interacted with the xo and the co on board the ship um to, to conduct uh, in briefings and things like that on cases well, if they needed something that was important, uh, they let me know about it. And uh, otherwise, it's kind of business as usual. We kind of flow the information up to them, and they would receive it when they needed it. Uh, but if the XO called or the CO called, and it was important to them, it became important to me. Uh, sure. I worked cases on there that was well below our threshold, as yeah. you know, uh, yeah. because it was important to them. We need mm -hmm. to make it happen. Uh, one case in particular, I share a lot of people, there was a fraternization case. Uh, a female uh, officer, uh, enlisted male sailor, and uh, that was a big deal to them that they had this relationship going on. They were communicating uh, covertly, and we developed information. They shared it with me. I did the interrogations, uh, both of them. And but the next morning, uh, the female officer was a captain's mast in front of the CO, and he flew her home uh, before, like about a month out from when the ship was returned to Mayport. You had female uh, crew members on board the ship when you were there? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Enlisted and officer. And really, it wasn't a problem, at least maybe because we were so busy the whole time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not that the sexual assaults weren't an issue, um, nothing like that. 
That's, That's interesting. Case back, a, a, a misdemeanor was like, I guess you'd call it misdemeanor marijuana case, but somebody came forward, mm -hmm. uh, told me about somebody having some marijuana on board and we're getting ready to go through the Suez Canal. Um, <laughs> and I rolled with it, got command authorized search, uh, found some marijuana. And within three hours, this guy's in front of the XO <laughs> uh, getting his punishment. Because that's a big deal for those guys. Drugs on board, get it taken care of, and get this guy off the ship. So you, you, keep, you keep the XO and the CO happy. If they're happy, you're happy. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I always tell people that you know the key uh, to being a carrier agent is your working relationship with the XO and CO. And you find your, uh, your loyalties sometimes are more to them than the agency. Um, Absolutely. Because you're working well, with them. well put. Yeah, yeah. Um, you become you become defensive of the command. You want to support yeah. them, and uh, yeah. you aren't going to obviously cover up or anything, but you kind of have some sympathies for what they have to go through. And uh, uh, but you want to support every which way. Yeah, sure. Was there a one case that stands out to you while you're on your tour aboard aboard the Kennedy? I mean, I had no serious crimes, no homicides, suicides. Um, yeah serious sexual assaults. It was mostly the intel side because of 9-11 and the war yeah. breaking out and what we were doing to support uh, that mission. Uh, I, I had access to the bomb bay. I would go into the, climb down the, the ladders and look at ropes into the bomb bay and the, the gun boss let me put personal uh, signatures or, or me messages on the bombs like uh, NYPD. Uh, Tom Brady had a brother who's a NYPD. I put NYPD, this bomb's for you. Take a picture of it and send yeah. that out uh friends from college uh you know, put names on there for them that is so awesome yeah you know that's unique i i that what a great experience to be able to do that and send out pictures hey, hey these are, i'm gonna personalize these bombs uh for uh, osama bin laden <laughs> yeah i even i want them for nypd i went and i personalized it in the bomb bay and then i when they put it on the f-18 i took another picture of it so <laughs> it's so no cool they were put on put it on a target but it was at least nypd and it, it was cool to send out a picture like that to, to, to show we supported them oh my goodness so um so you finish up your tour on the jfk and what's what's next for for you uh finished up there i guess uh august of 2002 um got back to bayport and then i uh, was assigned to uh, fbi joint terrorism task force for about a year uh, which was a pretty good time there because that's when the war started uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the Iraq, the invasion into Baghdad. So we had a large Iraqi population in Mayport, uh, not Mayport, Jacksonville. So stayed busy for, with that for a year, loved it, uh, good relationships, great with the FBI. Um, I always respected them. They respected me more after spending the year with them. And then to the end of that, rolled into a cold case homicide uh, with Dave Earl, uh, 2003. So you, uh, so Thomas Simos had been Dave's partner, and and now you're coming in as Dave's new partner, or or, do, or are you there before Tom? Uh, Tom had transferred. Tom, Tom and Dave started the cold case unit in, in Mayport along with Dave Simspot about 1995, and they are the legends. Uh, yeah, sure. About that, uh, with cold case, and then Tom had transferred. He went to BC in about 2002, 2003. And that's when I transitioned from the, the JTTF into um, Tom's spot there. And, and it worked out at the state attorney's office. So it's a good setup, had access to the prosecutors, subpoenas, everything we needed, um, take-home car. Uh, nice. Yeah, we stayed busy. But So it was an easy transition. Dave was there, Dave Early, and Dave knew cold case better than anybody. So um, next three years working cold cases. 
Let's talk about the cold case process because a lot of people were interested in how it operated back in those days. Uh, so this would be early 2000s that uh, that you're, you joined the cold case unit there at Mayport. Uh, so how did you and Dave work that as far as how did it, how did the situation, how, how did the cases come about? Well, some of them we, we found on our own. Uh, Dave and, and, and Tom, Seamos, uh, and then Lou Eliopoulos before he came to NCIS was at the military examiner's office. And Tom and Dave would go to the sheriff's office, uh, go to the medical examiner's office and find cases with a Navy nexus. Um, cases of unresolved homicides and say, let us take a look at this. And they'd either work it with the locals or locals would say, take it and let us know if you need any help. And that's how they developed most of their cases. Um, back before social media, families weren't really reaching out too much, asking for answers. So Tom and Dave uh, and Lou went out there and just made it happen and worked some outstanding cases early on. So you primarily work with it. There was a couple of sheriff's departments there uh, that affect the Navy presence in Jacksonville, I think. It's uh, is it Clay County and uh, St. John's County? Uh, more so Clay County, which is uh, NAS Jacksonville, and then JSO, which covers uh, Mayport. Uh, okay. St. John's County a little bit, a little bit further south, Ponte Vedra area, but uh, JSO for the most part is who we work with. So JSO covering all of uh, the, the city of Jacksonville uh, and that county. All in yeah. Lake County. What was, what was your experience of working with both those departments? Outstanding. Uh, still is. One of the guys who was a sergeant for the cold case unit when I was there, Jim Parker. And Jim now is with the uh, Seventh Circuit, which is a circuit just south of uh, where I'm at, uh, St. Augustine area. Uh, still have a good relationship with Jim Parker. Uh, he reaches out to us for help. We reach out to him. But uh, he was a sergeant of cold case squad when I started uh, way back in 2003. Great guy. Uh, he opened his office up to us, his files, uh, anything we wanted, uh, we took, we ran with it. He'd help us out if we needed it. Uh, so it was a good start to a good relationship way back then. Would you say a lot of your cases um, that, you, that you guys were developing um, was based on new evidence like DNA that uh, came about during that time? Or was there any other, was there other leads that you discovered had not been um, worked? Not so much DNA back when I started, especially with Tom and Dave started in the mid-90s. It was more or less just going back and re-interviewing, identifying logical suspects and getting confessions. Uh, mm -hmm. Thomas Seymour was one of the best interrogators I've ever seen. He, and back then, they would start videotaping the, the interviews and interrogations. And, and Tom was a bulldog, and Dave was too. And a lot of them came down to just interrogations, good old-fashioned police work. And then it evolved into the DNA. That was yeah. the next big uh, deal-breaker for cold cases we're going back resubmitting evidence that had been tested years before and now you got this genetic profile developed through dna and yeah. now well, it's even better and developed further is the uh, genetic genealogy yes. and uh, a couple of cases that i worked on years ago we had a suspect had a dna profile we couldn't match a suspect to because he wasn't in codis but they've gone back through forensic genetic genealogy and made a rest. And uh, wow. some of our guys were teamed up with JSO. I can't go much detail, but we were out last week collecting a sample in furtherance of a genetic genealogy case that I worked years ago. I think mm -hmm. we're gonna make, uh, be successful on that one. That's awesome. That's great to hear. <laughs> it's funny I, that you mentioned Thomas Emos, the, the, uh, his interrogation skills. We used to show those at the Academy, the new agents, and we used yes. to call it the hand on the shoulder. When Tom puts his hand on the shoulder, it's almost over. <laughs> yeah, 
He, he's good. He is good. And he's another one. He, he knows going in, the, the person's guilty. And yeah. he's not going to let up until yeah. the special before he asks for an attorney. Yeah, he is good. Yeah, he's something else. And Dave was great, too. Um, so what was it like working with Dave early? Dave, Dave and I, when we used to travel, we did all of our own leads. Uh, we worked on Watch Terrell's case in Puerto Rico. And we probably spent, I don't know, I can't remember how much time, but about 25 or 30 separate trips to Puerto Rico. We went to Brussels together. We went to Paris together. Uh, and we, one time, Dave and I commented, we said, brother, do you realize how good we have it? And I, we didn't <laughs> at the time, but looking back, it, that was just an outstanding time. Love Dave like a brother. Uh, he, he good to work with. Uh, just, I mean, one of the best. I still keep in touch with Dave quite often. We'll reach out and just chat. But uh, we had it made, uh, made because we love what we were doing. We had the support from the field office. Uh, worked state attorney's office. Had access to the prosecutors there. Uh, it was just a, a, a perfect time. Uh, great work. And we got to do our own leads. Instead of sending the lead to, to the Europe or Puerto Rico, we just do the travel and go do it. That's awesome. What a great job, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how long did you do you guys to work on cold case? Uh, I was to cold case 2003, 2006. And I deployed, I did a four month deployment to Kuwait, came back and they transitioned me back into uh, Jim Credit May mm -hmm. And about the same time, Dave did a PCS to uh, Bahrain. He came back with the Fletzy. So the early quick team was broken up at that point. <laughs> wow. Uh, Batman and Robin are a break. I know. How can they do that? <laughs> I don't know. Taking <laughs> a quick and early. We were, we were flying one time. We are flying arm. And they call up. You know, they always call you up the board to fly it early. And they yeah. said, uh, quick and early, quick and early, please come to the podium. Everybody's looking around like, is this for real, quick and early? <laughs> and one time we were in Atlanta, we left a card, a business card, or a note on somebody's door, uh, special agents, quick and early, please call us. We're like, yeah, this isn't legit. <laughs> that's not, that's <laughs> great. Yeah, that, that's, I've never, you know, that's amazing. That's funny. Because uh, I would have never got that until you just said that. Like, like quick yeah. and early. How, how can we put a team like that together? It's like, you I know. know. We can't make that up. <laughs> that's awesome, man. So, uh, so you come back to... You, now you're back in Jen Krim. Uh, well, before we go on to uh, as far as your cold case, what, what do you think that was the most significant case you guys worked while you're in cold case? Well, after 9-11, the agency said, are there any unrelated terrorism cases out there? And they identified the case in Puerto Rico. It happened way back in 1979, December 3rd, 1979. Uh, Machu Los Machu okay. Terros, a domestic terrorist group in Puerto Rico attacked a Navy bus, killed two sailors, Seriously wounded nine, uh, but it had been unresolved. Uh, the Monteteros took credit for it, uh, but it was never resolved. So the headquarters said, guys, take a look at that. And that was Tom and Dave and Lou at the time, and Dave Simsquad had worked it with them. So they started working it, I guess, the late 90s, trying to put a good case together. And then when I got there in 2003, I remember Dave, Dave always says, here, read this big book right here, because this is going to be your case. Uh, that was the Monteteros. So Dave and I, as we started making these trips to Puerto Rico, Lou went with us. Uh, Louis Vargas was the our IOS in Puerto Rico. And for the next three years, we worked that. And even when I left in 2006, Dave, Tom, and I still had our hand working these cases. When I was in Kuwait, I flew back um, to be the affiant on a court order to draw a, a, a DNA sample from one of our suspects. They flew Dave back. He was in uh, Bahrain then. 
So we left, but we still had our hands and, and worked this, uh, this, this Machateros case up until 2014. Uh, I'm at headquarters, and uh, Lou Iliopoulos and I are in Eastern District of New York, Brooklyn, uh, when one of the suspects is sentenced uh, under RICO, uh, murder predicate, uh, for the Machateros case, all the way back to 1979. So 35 years it took to get somebody prosecuted for that case. That's amazing. What, yeah. So what was your interaction with uh, headquarters cold case? Um, who did you work with up there? Uh, Jim Grievous, mostly when I was uh, working cold case. I think Bill Sullivan was before Grievous. Um, and then uh, Mike Sullivan later on uh, active with, with that. Uh, Joel Kennedy um, from headquarters level. Diane, you know, Kelly, our, our classmate. Uh, mm -hmm. Her and Jim were the uh, run the cold case squad mostly when I was uh, working cold case uh, two thousand three to six. Yeah, yeah, that's that. So it really is a team effort when you're doing cold case because there's a lot of work that has to be done uh, throughout it, and um, and it. But it really comes down to that moment when you guys sit down in the room and you're you're focused on the suspect, and I know that cold case uses multiple techniques to get to that point. Can you talk about some of the unique techniques that you guys may have used in the Machateros case to, to get to the point where you've identified a suspect and sit down in a room with him? Uh, a lot of luck involved in that one. Uh, luck because a lot of the evidence was preserved. Uh, there was an ambush van that was used to block the path of this of the bus, and they still had some evidence from that van. Um, some earplugs that were used by the shooters, those were preserved. Um, there's a curtain that was used to block the uh, the front to the back, uh, and that was preserved. Some some gloves in the, in the ambush van was preserved. So all these years later, Usacil, the Armored Crime Lab, developed a very uh, small DNA profile, like a three marker profile. And normally, you need like a ten or eleven marker profile for a perfect match. So we had about a three marker profile developed from some of the items in the ambush van. And that's what we use to go back to get a court order to draw a, get a sample from our suspect. And um, we confronted him. That was in 2008. He uh, didn't have a choice, but he, escorted, he went with us to back to a hotel that we had set up uh, for audio video and then sat down, drew his, drew his uh, DNA sample, and then for the next three or four hours, uh, interviewed him. And uh, he told us everything that we already knew, which put him in the ambush van, front seat passenger of the ambush van during the, during the attack. And uh, he's the one who later in 2014 pled guilty to the RICO murder predicate. And we, we had more suspects. We knew who all the players were in the terrorist group. Four of them had died um, and lived by the sword, died by the sword, that type of uh, outcome for some of them. Uh, the leader yeah. of the group, Roberto Ojeda Rios, was shot and killed by the FBI. He was a fugitive. Um, long story about why he's a fugitive, but they found him and uh, he chose not to give up prior to the FBI. They fired back. Uh, and in late, even the same case, when I was the sack in Norfolk in 2016, I went back to Puerto Rico again. We had a court order to draw DNA samples from two more people we were looking at. So the case, and actually, it's not over yet. I think there's still some potential for uh, uh, some more indictments and arrest on that case. Well, wow, that's an amazing case. That's a, excellent work as far as investigative work and, and kind of generating, you know, evidence if you will to, yeah, well, to and the big case thing there was, we always had somebody that had a passion and interest in the case so when i when when, when tom left he gives it to, uh, to me and dave's still there then we give it kind of hand it off to other people but somebody who had in a, 
knowledge of the case and the passion for the case always had their hand in it. Louis Leopolis is involved with us. Yeah. Louis uh, Vargas from Puerto Rico. Jeff Morrow, remember Jeff, he worked with us yeah. quite a bit on that case. I mean, it all, somebody always kept control of it. We never put it back on the back burner once we started rolling with it in the early 2000s, uh, just to see it through. So That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And so one more thing about that one. The, the, the widow of the, of the bus driver, uh, John Ball is a bus driver. Patty Ball is a widow. And when we were in court and um, invited her back and some other family members um, to, to the sentencing hearing, and she was there, we, we had a nice photo with her. But she told us later on that she always dreaded December 30, December 3rd because that was the anniversary uh, of her husband's death. But she said, after this, after somebody was held accountable, she looked forward to December 39 as a day of celebration. So December 30 was not a, a tough day for her anymore. So she didn't know we were working the case. We didn't tell her we had indicted anybody that we'd been working the case until like a month before the, before the sentencing. So she was there, but that, that, that just, that meant a lot to all those people that worked the, the case over all those years that, to bring closure and some comfort to people like Patty Ball and, and Patty's daughter, who was like four or five years old at the time when it happened. So it, it all came together. That is cool. You know, I think the, the cold case motto at the time was something like to the living, we owe the truth or something like that. Respect, we owe yeah, elder. Yeah. So it, it, exactly. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And one of the other guys that was there besides the Patty Ball and her daughter was a guy who was a passenger on the, on the bus and hops in the driver's seat and returns, drives the bus back to the base. Wow. Uh, not knowing if they were under attack or if the bad guys were going to return. But uh, he was there as well. So it was good to actually finally see him and talk to him. Uh, he was a hero as well that day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What's, so what's, uh, what's your next uh, stop after a cold case? Uh, cold case and back to Jim Cram, State Jim Cram. Did a couple of deployments out of Mayport. And uh, I was at about the 20-year mark uh, before I finally got into management. And I, I don't know if it was reluctantly or maybe just at, the, at some point figured, what the heck? <laughs> So I, I threw a name in, got picked up for SSA, and fortunately got got to stay in Mayport. Yeah, so I, I've been there a long time, so I get picked up to be SSA. I uh, about four months after a pickup for SSA, I deployed again, went to uh, Baghdad, uh, JCIU, former skid, yeah. uh, did that, and then rolled out about another year and a half before CRFO for a year, and then up the road to headquarters. Yeah, so. Uh, your time at CRFO, uh, of course, your deployments to the JCIU, the Joint Counterintelligence um, in, uh, Unit uh, in Baghdad, which used to be the Strategic Counterintelligence Directorate. Right. What was your experiences like going to Baghdad, working in the green zone there, uh, conducting uh, in, you know, operations um, uh, in, in a war zone? So tell me about that. Uh, it was another outstanding tour. Uh, had some great people there. Uh, again, I'm a crim dog. Don't know much at all about mm -hmm. counterintelligence. And I, I told the guys on the team going in there, I don't know what you know. So <laughs> do your job. Tell me what you need, and I'll take care of you. So I learned yeah. a lot there. Uh, Joe Bellinger was the opso from Mayport. Uh, Colonel Paul Walser was uh, from Air Force O's. I was the director. I still keep in touch with him. Good guy. Uh, yeah outstanding work lived and worked in the same building uh did you do a tour you did a tour at jciu right yes i did I, it was good when i was there uh but okay. we were there we'd moved into um uh five union three uh from the what they called the white house uh which right. was a couple of blocks away that, that was still in operation but we were at the um the new place former bath party headquarters is what it was yeah uh, exactly five, it was yeah. five union three right with the hole in the middle of the building 
Yeah, exactly. So the gym in the basement, uh, you worked on the first and second floor. Uh, yep. Your bedroom's on the fifth floor, no elevators, so a lot of stair climbing while you were there. But yeah, I loved it. Um, I did too. Dangerous, yeah, you know, right Irish, you know, uh, <laughs> what was, was a heck of a journey from the airport to the green zone. Yeah. Um, it, it, a good tour, good people. People's what make it, as you know, the, the yep. work. Um, a lot of trips outside the green zone, which could be exciting. Um, I was there from like, I, I guess, October to about February. So mm-hmm. through the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas. Uh, but the brand new American Embassy is right across the street. I uh, went there quite a bit for dinner. Uh, good little break. Uh, get away from the uh, five Union three. So yeah. So uh, what was? Did you have? You guys have an army unit there on board five Union three that uh, uh, controls security on board the uh, thing. And, and what was your relationship with those guys? Yeah, they were from they was Wisconsin National Guard was our yeah. uh, security team. Great yeah. guys. We used to train with them. Uh, good people. Yeah. And then yeah. they were replaced by, I think Kansas replaced them. So like the last month, Kansas, but the first three were Wisconsin, great guys. And they'd been there, I guess, the like six month tour is what they were doing. Um, but great, great people. They took care of us. Good stuff. So um, so tell me about uh, uh, any, any significant cases while you're there in Baghdad that you guys worked, uh, that you can talk about? That uh... Uh, We're not going into too much detail. A lot of them work with sources, and we had access to some, some decent money that we could pay good sources for good intel and yeah. uh colonel Qualwatch or colonel mckay as we, we called it very supportive uh if we had justification for what we what we wanted to do and how much we wanted to pay he was good with that um yeah. so mostly intel stuff um no crim stuff as you know working out of that that, that position so it was all yeah. intel um it, it wasn't real busy i mean the, the threats were always there uh we didn't have any attacks on on our building uh, while I was there. The first week we were there though, probably uh, maybe a quarter mile away, a car bomb went off, killed 150 people. And you can, you, you've been there, you can feel the ground shake, you know, yeah. and the walls of the building shake. So yeah. that's probably the closest one that we had had. One of the time, um, a couple of, the, well, the, the plaster kind of falls from the ceiling a little bit with some nearby <laughs> hits. Uh, yeah. But being that close to the Euphrates River and being right across the street from the from the embassy, you always felt the potential was there. For, you know, yeah. Something. Was it a fairly peaceful time or was it uh, uh, outside the wire or did you guys was, have issues? No, it was it was fairly peaceful. Um, this would have been like, like 2009. Mm-hmm. into 2010 time frame and about a year before that i was in Balad, which it wasn't as bad um but there, it was a little more uh, treacherous there about a year earlier and as you know going back to 2006 it's really the, the bad stuff with fallujah so i think i was for towards the tail end uh winding down the u.s security forces had pretty much locked down uh most of the uh, the country so it was still uh, dangerous to travel but uh it wasn't happening when the, the threats and the attacks were quite like they were years before. So, yeah, sure. Sure. Still made for, I did three while I was still made for it. And the fourth one I did was Leatherneck after I transferred to CRFO. Like I did, okay. I had the short, shortest tour ever at CRFO. I was there for eight months. Four <laughs> of that was deployed. And I come back to my last point, Leatherneck, and I, I go to headquarters. Well, it worked out well. Originally, I was supposed to go to um, Div Chief for. Uh, I think it was going to be ops, um, sex assault, and something else. And I uh, wasn't really excited about that, to be honest with you. <laughs> I was going to be a geo bachelor because my youngest daughter was still in high school. Uh, yeah. I was happy to stay on the East Coast. So I'm going to headquarters. I think that's doable. And um, 
when I'm in a, uh, camp, uh, a Leatherneck, I get an uh, email from uh, Dave Racer, you know, one of my old classmates, mm-hmm. who was the chief of staff. He said, uh, asked by the available for a phone call, and we chatted. And he said, hey, you're coming to headquarters. Would you uh, want to be the deputy's EA? And he said, a lot of travel. Um, but if you're going to be a geo bachelor, it's probably a good fit for you. And I know Mark since we were our, our partners in special ops back in Mayport. So I said, absolutely, I'll take that uh, position. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2012, rolled up to uh, headquarters, Mark's uh, EA. I did that until uh, Eddie Traver came as a director uh, mm-hmm. about a year and a half later and then uh, transitioned to uh, director's EA. So I, I was an EA for three years out there, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as the executive assistant for the deputy director and director, uh, you obviously, uh, that, that must have been interesting times to hear some of the conversations that went on. It was because every meeting they go to, you go to. Uh, yeah. Peer behind it, peek behind the curtains, what it amounted to. You could see uh, what's going on, the conversations, uh, the meetings, uh, the decisions that were made. Uh, it, it, was, it, it was enjoyable. And I had to avoid a headquarters like the plague my whole career. I uh, didn't want to go there, uh, but I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And yeah. I had a good time. Got along well with Mark. Uh, go back to our days of working ops. I always respected him because he was, he was a good hard worker. Yeah. And then uh, Andy Traber comes in, brand new to the agency. And uh, I, I didn't, wasn't a vacancy. This kind of happened. I rolled in and became his EA. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was going to be a good fix. I was still a geo bachelor, as was Andy Traver. And uh, we lived in the same apartment complex, actually. <laughs> but we tried. He had to learn the agency, which meant traveling. Um, right. And we were gone a lot. So yeah. I got to see the whole agency. But better part of a year, he made it to every field office, yeah. uh, which is a lot of travel. So Yeah, sure. Sure. It, and we think about Andy. He, he never... I mean, he was intelligent. He, he remembered names. Uh, yeah. I'm sure he called you by your first name because he met you one time and remembered you for life. He yep. used to give a speech someplace uh, and no notes. It was all up here in the head. He would think about it and just get yeah. up there and do some of the best speech I've ever heard in my life. I learned a lot yeah. from him about public speaking and presentations. Yeah. And um, so he was good at it, very good at it. What are some of the conversations you guys have? And what, what do you guys talk about when you're, when you're uh, you know, at that level? A little bit about everything. It's like uh, you're, you're partnered up. You know, yeah. This is your partner for, for yeah. a case you're working, the decisions. Uh, more like a sounding board for, mm-hmm. for the boss. Uh, mm-hmm. They want to ask you what your thoughts were. Um, yeah. uh, kind of keep you in check. Somebody say, hey, you know, is my tie straight? <laughs> my suit look okay <laughs> today? You know, my hair messed up? Just somebody to have is that confidant. Yeah, just yeah. to say, you know, you suck today, or about you might try something <laughs> a little different. Uh, you got to be very careful and polite about it, but it just you got to have the, the the boss has to have your confidence and vice versa. Yeah, sure. Would you prepare him for trips? Okay, this is what to expect when you go to this particular field office. Pretty much, is what before we would leave, um, I'd always reach out to the ombudsman, who was Matt myself at the time, or reach out sure. to the SAC to get a pulse of what's going on out there. Is there anything that we don't know about? Anything we need to brief? Uh, the boss on research is going to be an issue uh, that's going to come up that he needs to be able to answer. So prepping best we could going out to where we were. And that uh, I think always served him well. So he wasn't walking in anything blindsided or, or uh, something he wasn't prepared for. And um, so he, he just making sure he was prepared uh, for the most part, uh, knew what he's getting into. And 
I knew most of the people, uh, either the SAC or the ASAC. So I'd make the phone calls in advance and I'd grease the skids and make sure uh, if they had any concern, they would address them through me. Um, it, it, but it worked out well. I don't think we were ever blindsided any place you went, anything he wasn't expecting. So. Yeah. Well, you know, directors from Nedro through Brant, through Beatro, um, all the way up to Mr. Traver, um, and even today with, with our current director, it's interesting how receptive they are to questions. I remember Nedro being asked a question about, you know, people leaving the other organizations. And I think his answer was something like, hey, well, let them go. If you don't like, if you're not happy here, they should go where they want to go. Yeah. Um, so did, did you ever have uh, those moments where um, you, you dreaded uh, that uh, the director dreaded questions from certain people or, uh, you know, what kind of questions would he dread uh, to answer? Uh, PCS questions were, were, were quite sensitive at times because yeah, sure. depending on where you went to, people uh, if Southeast were always pretty happy because they, they were someplace they wanted to be and people <laughs> other places wanted to get to the Southeast for yeah. nobody would want to leave from. Yeah. So I think yeah. those were tough questions to work around because as you know, it's not always the same. It doesn't seem to be the same policy for transfer. When are you going to transfer? How long are you going to stay in place? Mm -hmm. uh, when do forced transfers come into play? Um, mm -hmm. So and it, when Ridley was uh, the deputy, we, we had a tough time there. We had to do like probably 15 or 20 forced transfers. So yeah. following those transfers going out to the field office, uh, that was a hot topic. You know, why yeah. is this person leaving? Whose decision was it? How did you come about making that decision? Yeah. And it's just tough to try to explain. You've been in the room at headquarters. It's mm -hmm. tough. You got a hundred people that put in for a transfer and you got four openings and it all, all things got to come together until somebody sits in a room and understand how a decision is made. It's hard to understand. And it's probably harder to explain to the field yeah. uh, how that process got to us. Uh, and the charts were huge. I mean, I like to fill a desk with, with the vacancies, the office of who put in and yeah. you'll make, you got different colors for you know, time and place. Um, who's never transferred before, uh, family issues. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go involved and people just don't understand it. Have all, you know, it's been, that's the biggest challenge I think is going through is that PCS cycles, trying to get people out of positions in CONUS and that's, that's continental United States to OCONUS outside the continental United States and getting those people from OCONUS back into CONUS. So yeah, I, I, you're right. It's always been an issue. It always will be an issue because of the nature of the agency where you got a third of your personnel always rotate overseas. So mm -hmm. the people overseas have to have a place to come back to. And the yep. people here means have to vacate and transfer. So it's a constant vicious circle. And when it gets plugged because somebody won't leave or doesn't want to leave, yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 it becomes tough. See, yeah. People should know that coming in, what they're getting yeah. into. And that's the thing I try to explain to the new agents all the time. I said, listen, you know, look for that opportunity to go overseas because that's going to be the, one of the best tours you ever have or go to a carrier tour, you know, because uh, a lot of these new agents in Pendleton after about three years, now they got about 10 years of experience in any other office because they're working so many death cases, so many sexual assault cases. And, you know, you're just trying to let them know that once you go overseas, it's going to be one of the best tours you ever have, but there's no guarantee that you'll get what you want coming back because, you know, the agency has to move you back in and you might end up in a place like the Northeast field office when you want to go to the Northwest field office. Right. So it's just, it is what it is.
Well, I got Mayport coming out of Guam, so I, I guess that was number one. But I figured I, I did Chicago, which nobody wanted to Chicago. I did Guam, yeah. nobody wanted to go to Guam. I don't know if they, if that's why I got Mayport or just luck of the dice, but uh, got Mayport and stayed there a long time. I didn't want to leave. I, I, I was part of that bottleneck down there. that jam. So, yeah, I think we've closed offices down over the years, some smaller miseries, one man, two man office, because the productivity wasn't there. It was nice to have somebody ingrained locally if you need to lead you sit it there for the big kansas city uh midwest uh, other place but uh, you got to produce uh yeah. or to close the office down so well, we used to say it's not you know and that was i remember going on these things with with uh with chuck and we went to japan and we went to several places and i just remember saying hey this isn't personal but because you know we're just basing this on the work that's being done we don't if you if you've got 10, 15 cases, that's great. If you don't, you know, if you only got two cases, why? Yeah. You know, and a lot of people thought it was personal. I, it was, it was an interesting time. I remember uh, my, my supervisor at the time said, I'm not sure you want to go on one of these jobs because everybody will remember you were part of that deal. That, you know, <laughs> that's right. Got, got rid of the position. And I said, well, you know, if the deputy director asked me to do it, I'm, I'm going to do it, you know, because I believe it's the right thing to do um, when you're asked to do something like that. So yeah. interesting times, Tim, interesting times. It was, I remember that project. I was there with the deputy when he sent that team down there to Mayport because mm -hmm. they thought they were overstaffed and uh, they may have been based on the numbers you all came back with. Uh, yeah. Case productivity sources, um, uh, briefs. Uh, if, the, if the numbers aren't there, then maybe it's time to cut. Well, yeah, I, I won't. I, there was one person at uh, Mayport, uh, and I won't name who that is, but basically um, this person told me, you cut as many as you want to. <laughs> and I, won't, I won't go into particulars, but uh, that I, when I went back to Mr. Howard uh, with Chuck on that, he, he's like, okay, well, we'll talk to the acting sack here and, and we'll figure this all out. So it was an interesting time. I, uh, and not one of the best jobs I ever had. I'll say that. It was a, it was an interesting time though. Yeah. That was a tough period there. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so um, you're, um, you're EA for, for the director. Um, is there any um, more memories that, uh, that uh, stand out to you as you look back now and good times, bad times that, uh, that you can it was all good times. Uh, my theme throughout this whole interview is my all good times. I never had a bad experience, even deployments. Yeah. Areas, all good times and same with the my time the director it was uh it was tough uh the, probably the third year as the ea if there was second year with the directors it was my, my family at that point my wife had moved up there so the travel wasn't as much fun uh yeah. for the director the same way because his family had uh, moved out from colorado so yeah it was not as much fun traveling anymore uh we've been going uh, heavy for a while sure. so, at two years with him and then the vacancy came up as a sack in Northbrook. And uh, that was an easy PCS for me, uh, hour and a half drive from where we were living and mm -hmm. uh, transitioned down to, to, to Norfolk. Uh, absolutely loved it there. Now, another place I never really wanted to go to was Norfolk, headquarters of Norfolk. And I do back to back and love both places. Uh, good living there, good people. Uh, traffic was a little worse than, than Mayport and Jacksonville. Not yeah. as bad as DC, but still, still a lot, especially with all the carriers were in uh, at the base of Norfolk. But again, good people, good times. And yeah. I would have stayed there longer. Um, my plan was to retire and punch out of Norfolk. But uh, going all the way back 
my time at the state attorney's office, we talked about earlier, 2003, 2006, when I worked cold case, mm-hmm. uh, became friends with a young prosecutor, Melissa Williamson, mm-hmm. later become Melissa Nelson, gets elected state attorney in uh, 2016. Um, her team reaches out and said, hey, you want to come back to Florida to work for Melissa? So that's what brought me <laughs> back to Melissa. And you never, and that's those relationships you develop early on. You never know yeah. where it's going to go. Sure. So I would have stayed in Norfolk probably through um, 2018. Probably would have been mandatory for me, uh, but it worked out. I left earlier. Uh, started January 17 with Melissa, and I'm still here, State Attorney's Office. So well, um, while you're there uh, um, at as SAC of uh, Special Agent in Charge of Norfolk, what were some of the challenges that you had when you're going in there? Because uh, I mean, every every leader has kind of a you, you read their inspection reports, you do all those things. And then you you reported the job. What were some of your challenges? It was the cat ace. Where I was very low there. We were doing uh, when you and I came on. There was a, a threshold for what we cases we work, and they had changed that in about 2012-13. So the misdemeanor cat ace, the uh, the over close touch, the indecent assaults, we normally wouldn't work. Those are now directed to be worked by NCIS. So the agents were overwhelmed with the number of cat ace they were working there, sexual assaults in Norfolk. Uh, they would work more than than any other office in the agency, and morale was low. Uh, attrition was starting to become pretty high. People leaving, agents leaving, going to other agencies. So there was no easy fix. We had to work these cases. Um, Mo Evans was the ASAC or in Karama. She developed a pretty good game plan on how to uh, tackle these cases. Uh, but then again, at the same time, like we were doing case reviews at. The agents were carrying 20, 30, sometimes 40 cases. The SSAs were spending the whole time doing case reviews. You get through case reviews, and the month was up. You had to start back over and do case reviews again. Uh, Norfolk had been through two or three inspections recently. Uh, so it was just a tough time walking in. And, and me coming from headquarters, people in the field don't want anybody from headquarters to be there. So I think uh, here comes somebody from headquarters trying to fix it. Uh, but it, I thought it worked out pretty well. I'm low key going in, good team. I just made it work, and I well, I, I felt good there that things were rolling in the right direction. I I didn't want to leave. To be honest with you, I would have stayed yeah. there for two more years. Um, but it, 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 I thought we were on the right track when I left. I, I hope they were. So, so for all those people out there that uh, listen podcasts that are you know looking for that promotion from 14 to 15, what can you talk about some of the successful steps you used when you're dealing with your new with your management team that you've never worked with before that uh, that worked for you in there um a lot of one-on-one time i mean what i want to be as a group i mean yeah. I, I didn't dictate i would ask for input input uh, suggestions um uh, and then collectively if we could make a decision this is the yeah. game this is the game plan moving forward i didn't go in there with a heavy hand um uh had an all hands first two or three weeks, try to figure out what the, the boss of the agency was, uh, try to get out and about as much as I could, talk to the agents one-on-one. Uh, I, I wanted to be uh, be transparent as much as possible in the decisions that were being made and why the decisions were being made. I invited people to come in and chat about the careers, about the PCS. Uh, I tried to give people warnings uh, if they were on the chopping blocks, if they'd been there too long. And, and I, if I knew their name was coming up for a transfer, Probably going to be a force transfer. Uh, tried to soften the blow a little bit and invite them in, have that conversation. So I think looking back on my career, I'd had like 26 years with the agency at that point. Mm-hmm. 
and looking back on what worked for me, what made me appreciate the agencies and supervisors the most is what I tried to institute there. I learned a lot from bad supervisors, uh, probably as much as I learned from good ones. That's uh, great. So yeah. the, good, the stuff I learned from how not to treat people, I would, would remember that um, and, yeah. and, and carry that through. But uh, isn't that, I mean, I, isn't that the truth? I mean, you learn, I used to say, I, I did the same thing. I said, I learned more from bad supervisors than good supervisors because you learn what not to do as yeah, opposed to what to do. Yeah, it's like playing sports too. You learn a lot from a loss as much yeah. as you do from a win. <laughs> That's so true. Think about a bad supervisor, how not to treat people, uh, uh, don't disrespect somebody, uh, you know, treat them with respect. And, and I, I'm, I'm like you, I love the agency. I felt like the luckiest guy in the world. Every day I went to work, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Uh, yeah. I, I tried to share that with others. I mean, and again, kind of like that Roy Nedro I responded, if you don't like the agency, there's probably not much more we can do to make it better for you. So if you're not happy here, maybe it's, I, you gotta be coy and, and careful about how you send that message out. But yeah, if you're not happy here, you probably aren't gonna be happy elsewhere. So yeah. learn to like this and make the most of it and uh, it'll get better. It'll be bad days, bad weeks, um, but it'll be fun. Uh, you, you know, looking back on your career the same way, what, what a great ride it was. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So you, you, you accept this job with the state attorney's office. To talk, tell me about what you're doing now. Well, I'm the chief investigator uh, for a state attorney. Uh, we cover three counties, Jacksonville, which is Duval County, uh, Nassau County to the north, and then Clay County to the south. Uh, the office itself, 320 people, about 120 prosecutors. I have a team of 25 investigators, detectives that I've ever signed to, to us. And uh, we pretty much have the case from file to trial. So the locals, uh, whoever bring the case to us, we prepare we follow up through the trial, locating witnesses, um, the victims, um, any casework, uh, uh, lab work needs to be done. And occasionally we'll work the proactive stuff, white collar stuff. We will work in uh, overdose death investigations for a short period of time until uh, JSO has, has taken that one with it. Um, We've got a good, good uh, other cases I can't say too much about because I don't want uh, sure. kind of political stuff going on. Uh, yeah, sure. but we stay busy, and uh, my plans were not to work past age 60. I'm 61 <laughs> now, so I, I, I blew that. Uh, but I think I'm going to try to stay at least until summer of 23 on my plan. I've shared that with the state attorney, and she's uh, supportive of that. So it's still fun, just like the NCIS. Look forward to going to work every day. Love the people I work with. Um, Anytime we get our group of investigators in the same room together, I, I tell them we have about a thousand years of experience in the same room because these guys are on second careers, most of them. Uh, yeah. JSO, uh, FHP, uh, Tom Brady from NCIS works with us. Uh, oh, nice. Uh, Conviction Integrity Unit. So, good group of guys. They know as much more than I do. Uh, they're easy to manage. Nobody's complaining about PCS, <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> They show up, they're happy to be here. Uh, it's a good job. And uh, it's just, it, it's, it's still fun to be working in law enforcement. And I, I'll, get, I'll keep it for, keep it going for about a year and a half. So that's then, awesome, uh, man. Yeah. So uh, it, a typical case, I mean, um, I'm sure there's some rural counties out there that, um, you know, do some of their work, their investigative work. Do you find that <clears throat> some of these counties uh, don't have the money to, uh, do some of the work that uh, you know that you guys can do, and do you take cases 
that are really need to be completed or there are leads that haven't been done because maybe the, the, they couldn't afford it or they just didn't do it. Um, what, you know, what's a typical case like uh, from a, a county that you're- all three, all three of our counties have good agencies. The police departments and sheriff's office are good, progressive agencies. So funding's not an issue there. Most of it, if there's anything, maybe it's fallen through the cracks, maybe a new witness has developed. Um, mm-hmm. we, we work with the lead detectives. We don't, if we do something in conjunction with them, we want them to know what okay. we want to further into their case. So they have a lot of pride in what they did uh, and do. So we'll make the case stronger if it can be. Uh, that's based on the input from the prosecutor. Uh, they kind of have the case once it's filed, the direction where it's going from there. So it's to make the case stronger. Um, yeah. really not, at least we're fortunate to have where we are aggressive agency. So it's not like uh, inferior or some, uh, uh, a bad case that we get. Um, we just kind of move right. forward and get through the trial and then support the prosecutors and the witnesses and, and everybody else to, uh, all the way through. So, so it sounds like a real team effort, a force multiplier that you guys are uh, there at the state attorney's office. It is. And from my viewpoint, seeing the cases from the prosecution side, we were always on the, uh, the enforcement side for years. You hand mm-hmm. a case off to a prosecutor, you may or may not see it all the way through federal level, sometimes you get to sit at the table with the prosecutor, but the state level, man, from the six years I've been here, oh, five and a half, you see cases differently, perspectives differently, um, what it takes to win a trial. I mean, when we were working the streets, or working law enforcement, there's a, a probable cause, you make an arrest, you hand it off, but uh, the the level, the preponderance for the prosecutors is proof of the unreasonable doubt. So it's a higher standard, and you, got, you understand why cases are not prosecuted, uh, why they don't accept the case for prosecution. Uh, you gain a greater appreciation for, for their job and what they go through. So it's it kind of good to end up the career, my career, it, from this perspective, seeing it all the way through um, to file to trial and uh, go from there. And that's great stuff, man. And, and you know, and now um, the Quick family, we, it's a family affair for NCIS. You have one daughter who's a special agent, one daughter who's a criminal investigator here in California that I work with. And it's great to see that kind of legacy uh, because both of them seem to be doing just great work. I know that Justine is doing great work so far here uh, at the office. We're looking forward to her being a special agent in the the future, hopefully in the near future. So, Yeah, and the good thing about that, they know what they're getting into. There's no secrets there. Uh, I've talked to some of the agents here who have been hired and kind of came in, but I wasn't expecting this uh, with the, the caddies, the assaults, and the transfers. I think a lot of people don't always know what they're getting into. So from both my daughters, uh, they know what it's like. They know the, the, the PCSs that I've made, the hours that I was working, special ops and 7N, narcotic stuff. So they know what they're getting into. And the daughter who works here in Mayport, I've told her, I said, stay here as long as you can because you'll never get back here. Everybody wants to come to Florida. So. <laughs> And she's in our, she's not in a hurry, but she's ready to transfer her and go overseas. I said, don't get in a hurry because there's no state income tax in Florida. Everybody wants here. You'll never come back here. So, yeah. Well, I, I always tell people, I said, you know, the thing about uh, the quicks is, first of all, both daughters are, are, team, um, are team players. They came from a team player environment. Both were really good soccer players. I know that I saw a top 10 on ESPN one time. Your daughter made the top 10. Uh, yeah, for Jesus' day. And Justine played at UCF. So both of them played D1 college soccer. I think that helps a lot. The, uh, the mindset, yeah. the team spirit, the, uh, the attitude, uh, both of them tough as nails. So they'll do well. I, I agree. I think that 
I get to work with Justine. Uh, you know, I just get to see her on a daily basis and she is, she's tough as nails and uh, a great to a great credit to you and your, your wife who have been great parents to them um, and raised them up. Right, man. They're, they're, they're doing good stuff. Uh, carry, on, carry on that legacy, if you will. Hand the baton off and, and as soon as they'll have the baton by themselves and I'll just sit back and uh, uh, live through them. Yeah. Oh man. Well, good, man. So uh, is there anything else you want to talk about before we, uh, we, we wrap this up? No, I, I great chatting with you, brother. And I, I, I appreciate what you're doing with the agency for all these, uh, these, all your podcasts. Cause uh, it's, it's good. It's good for the history of the agency for others yeah. to learn from it and uh, kind of keep the excitement going. So well, I, I, I hope people are, uh, you know, all I ask people to do is just continue to share so that, um, you know, people know the real stories about the people who served uh, in, in the history of this organization, this great organization, which, you know, I love talking about the history of, you know, of NIS, NCIS, you know, even you know, the, the parts uh, starting with the O&I. Um, because it's just a cool agency. And that's what I tell people all the time. I say, I work for the coolest agency in the federal government and, uh, and, and, and have been proud to serve it now for, you know, for 30 years. So oh, absolutely. You, we, going back to when we started in 89, did you ever think it was going to turn out this good? Did you think it was going to be that much fun? Well, I got to tell you those first couple of years, um, you know, having to deal with the Iowa investigation and uh, the, right. the tail hook, uh, those were, you know, I, it, I always tell people, I said, you know, the family atmosphere of NIS back in the day was, was nice. I mean, we, we had a great, um, you know, I was in San Diego. So I always tell people, I said that, you know, that was like my second family. You know, I, I left Alabama, went to California and uh, immediately became a Californian. I, I, it was, it was a great and I had great bosses, uh, very comfortable working there. And then we went into the, you know, the Iowa years and the, and of course, I think that, uh, you know, I was talking to Admiral Tom Brooks here and he was talking about the, the, how the agency has changed over the years. He believes it's significantly better than it was when he was with it in the sixties and seventies. And there's a lot of things that, you know, that we were working through. And um, he mentioned specifically, he said the, the years where the JAG were in charge were he, in his estimate, the bad years. Um, because we felt like the leadership was just not, not there for us. And the agents, I think, felt the same way, how we were kind of, I, like, I felt like we were the dog on the chain in the Iowa investigation. It's a bad dog, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, of course, in the Tailhook investigation, you know, I, he would tell you that he believed that the, 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 those cases were run very professionally, but, you know, there were you know, the, the, admirals that were in charge of the organization time really kind of just you know threw us to the to the wolves if you will that was that command influence that as bad as that tail hook was for the outcome the way it was handled it's probably the best thing ever happened to the agency i think you'll agree with that because that's when roy nedville came in civilian director boom yep that was a great interview with tim quick um, from his time as an agent afloat on the john f kennedy uh, time as a narcotics agent his cold case time great experiences not to mention his deployments to war zones in Iraq, supporting counterintelligence efforts as well as criminal investigations. And he has a legacy with us. Um, his two daughters are working with the agency doing great work. I apologize for the sound issues this, this week. We were using a new mic and uh, wasn't very happy with the results, but 
we'll uh, we'll push through that and do better shows in the future I'm sure um, thanks to Tim again I uh, have an email address if you have any comments questions concerns please send me an email to at ncispodcast at yahoo.com uh, opening closing music provided by BizBaz Studio and we're available on your favorite podcast service uh, especially Apple Spotify and Google please consider giving me a five star rating down below so I can continue doing the show Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening, and I appreciate your time. Have a great week. Fair winds and following seas. We'll see you next time.